Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for a new year, a new opportunity to encounter you and grow in deeper relationship with you. We pray, Lord, that you would bless this time together as we are in your word, that you would bless us each in the ways we most need it. And help us especially to be attentive to how you're speaking to us, that our ears and hearts would be opened and ready to receive whatever you speak, whatever you have in store for us tonight, and you would guide us as we delve into sacred scripture. We ask, Lord, that you remove from us any distraction, any worry or anxiety, anything removing us from this place mentally or preventing us from being focused on your word. And we just ask, Lord, for your blessing and guidance during this time so that we can better understand how you are speaking to each one of us. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome. This evening we are in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This Sunday is the uh, Epiphany of the Lord, and so it is always on January 6th or the nearest Sunday. Uh, January 6th is the uh, after 12 days of Christmas. That's why it's uh, always on the 6th, but we'll celebrate it on Sunday, which is the 7th, correct? Yes, yeah. Um, so, and then the very next day, uh, Monday, is the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord. Um, but this Sunday we'll be reading uh, from the second chapter of Matthew's Gospel, uh, the story of the visit of the Magi. So this is one of those stories, as I've said before, but this one in particular that you've heard a thousand times. I mean, every Christmas, whether you've read the Bible or not, you hear this story or some version of it. So you probably have an image of this in your mind. You probably know it really well. Delete that momentarily and act as though you've never heard this story before, that you have no idea this part of the birth narrative of Jesus. And just see what you notice as we read through this. Uh, we'll read it twice through as we always do. First time, just get a picture for what is being said here. Uh, so far in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we've just heard about um, the birth of Jesus and his genealogy. So this is uh, in Luke, we have this very elaborate narrative of all the things that happen surrounding Jesus' birth. This is a separate thing, only in the Gospel of Matthew, talking about uh, what happens uh, after, shortly after, but not directly at the time of his birth. So sometime after, uh, soon after, we have this visit of the Magi. So Matthew chapter 2, first time through, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star at its rising and have come to do him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was greatly troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. 
They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it has been written through the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, since from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and ascertained from them, sorry, my notes are covering this, ascertained from them the time of the star's appearance. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may go and do him homage. After their audience with the king, they set out. And behold, the star that they had seen at its rising preceded them until it came and stopped over the place where the child was. They were overjoyed at seeing the star. And on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They prostrated themselves and did him homage. Then they opened their treasures and offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their country by another way. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So, now that you've heard this once, we're going to read it a second time. The second time, now, uh, now that you have this image in your mind, pay close attention to the words as they are read. See if any particular detail uh, stands out to you for any particular reason, uh, speaks to you personally, doesn't have to be to interpret the passage theologically, but it just resonates with you or reminds you of something, resonates with something you've been praying about, something like that. Pay attention to those things and ask the Lord, uh, why is this standing out to me? What are you trying to say to me? So second time through Matthew chapter 2. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, Behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star at its rising and have come to do him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was greatly troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it has been written through the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, since from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and ascertained from them the time of the star's appearance. He said to them, or he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may go and do him homage. After their audience with the king, they set out, and behold, the, the star that they had seen at its rising preceded them, until it came and stopped over the place where the child was. They were overjoyed at seeing the star, and on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They prostrated themselves and did him homage. And they opened their treasures and offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their country by another way. Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take uh, a few moments to look over the passage and what stood out to you, reflect on that, and then we'll take about the next uh, 10 minutes or so to uh, just chat at our tables. You're free to bunch up. I know we're a smaller group tonight, uh, or stay where you are, up to you. Uh, if you're watching this or listening to it later, please let us know what stood out to you, but we'll take, again, about the next 10 minutes, discuss at your tables, maybe 15 minutes, uh, what stood out to you and why, and then we'll bring it back to the larger group uh, for some teaching and Q&A. Well, all right, friends.
Uh, so a little bit of context in this. I, I, I think there's so much in this um, that we could probably get to. So I think what I'd like to do is just, I'd like to give you kind of the context that Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. He has a lot of Jewish imagery. He's writing to a Jewish audience about the Jewish Messiah. So I want to give you some of the Jewish kind of Old Testament background that if you were a Jew reading this for the first time, immediately what you would have noticed or paid attention to. And then we can get into some of the other details. Uh, first, I think you would have seen the striking similarity between the details surrounding Jesus' birth and the details surrounding the birth of Moses. Okay, so shortly after this story, you have the fact that Herod orders the death of all of the uh, newborn children under the age of two in the region because he's threatened by this new quote-unquote king, and he is the king of the, the area. And then revealed in a dream by an angel to Joseph or in a vision, uh, he takes the Holy Family and they flee to Egypt. And so just as in, in Moses' uh, lifetime, Pharaoh at the time, in, in order to cut down the population of the Hebrew people that was growing very large out of fear that they would overtake him because they'd been enslaved, orders the death of all of the young boys under the age of two or so to be thrown into the Nile as a sacrifice. Now, through miraculous intervention, the same way that uh, a vision or an angel comes to Joseph, uh, the, the daughter of the Pharaoh finds Moses in the river Nile and cares for him and raises him up in the house of Pharaoh. Eventually, he flees from Pharaoh, just as Jesus flees from Herod. And then eventually, they're told that they can go back. Uh, he goes, Moses goes back to Egypt. Uh, Jesus literally flees to Egypt and then comes back. So there's obvious similarities there. And in the kind of miraculous intervention uh, that happens through Moses, when he comes back to Pharaoh and says, I'll let my people go, and he starts to bring these plagues, who does Pharaoh consult but his sorcerers, his magi? And the same thing happens in this kind of scenario where these sorcerers or magicians of a sense from the East come to consult about these things that are happening. So there's a lot of similarities in that sense. Secondly, there would be uh, some similarities that one might notice from a lesser known uh, Old Testament story. Well, this is the story of Balak and Balaam. Uh, Balak at the time was the king of Moab. This is in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. And he is worried about the Jewish people, and he goes and seeks out a pagan soothsayer named Balaam. And he asks him to proclaim curses upon the Jewish people. And he asks him this like three or four times. He First, he like asks him via letters. Balaam won't do it. He doesn't answer him. Eventually, he goes out to him to find him. And he basically says, like, I'm going to say whatever God tells me to say. Okay, which are bold words from a pagan soothsayer. He's not a Jewish person. And every time he consults God, God tells him, like, these are my people. They're blessed. You cannot proclaim curses upon, him, upon them. And so ba Balak, uh, the king, keeps trying to pressure him to do this. And um, he, he refuses to. And then God intervenes in such a way that it basically, like, prophesies against the king uh, of Moab, of, uh, of Balak, and basically prophesies his destruction. And in part of that prophecy, uh, in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17... Uh, Balaam says, a star shall advance from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel that will crush the brows of Moab, that's who Balak is the king of, and the skull of all the Sethites, Edom will be dispossessed and no survivor is left in Seir. Israel will act boldly and Jacob will rule his foes. So he prophesies this proclamation of destruction against this king. And he does so with this prophecy about a star rising proclaiming that there will be a savior from Judah. 
Okay, so these are the things you probably immediately would have heard or your ears would have perked up to the similarities between these different Old Testament scenarios versus the details that are happening here. There would have been very clear, distinct similarities. Uh, one other uh, kind of thing to point out is the differences between Matthew and Luke in their birth narratives. I, I alluded to this earlier, but um, in Matthew you have magi, whereas in Luke you have shepherds. Okay, magi come from far, the shepherds are very close by. Where do the Magi go? They go to the seat of power. They go to the palace bringing expensive gifts. In Luke, there is a humble stable and a manger in which the, the Lord is born. Uh, there are supernatural events such as dreams and angels that appear in both of those scenarios, but it shows you kind of these like the stark contrast where Luke presents uh, a Jesus who is very present to the Gentiles and uh, is very humanized. Uh, but Matthew doesn't shy away from that either. We have this kind of explanation of the Gentile Magi coming, and we have these moments of Gentiles, the Roman centurion, the Canaanite woman, uh, who are healed in, throughout the course of the Gospel of Matthew. And even in his genealogy, he includes a few non-Jews in the genealogy of Jesus. But he still is trying to proclaim that Jesus is this Messiah, the one who will be called the King of the Jews, and kind of has this very royal type of imagery in his gospel presentation of the birth narrative versus the very humble circumstances of Luke's. So there is that kind of disparity. They're both valid, they're both true, because Jesus is both divine and human, and so they both kind of complement one another uh, in that sense. But um, those are the things I think would be useful to know about the, the, the Jewish reading of this. Uh, and then the last thing I'll say about that, the prophecy that is mentioned is actually a couple prophecies. One comes from Micah chapter 5, verse 1, where it says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, least among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient times. Okay, and then... We get the second half of this from 2 Samuel chapter 5, where we get this, uh, you shall shepherd my people Israel, you shall be a ruler over Israel, where we get that final line of the prophecy. So Matthew here has kind of constructed these two things together to show how a lot of the prophetic Old Testament tradition is pointing to things that are happening at this moment that come to pass in the person of Jesus, who he's trying to argue from the very beginning of his gospel that he is the Jewish Messiah, the one who's been promised, the one who even Moses said, one greater than me is coming to him you shall listen. Okay, So all of those things I think would have been very on the forefront of the minds of a Jewish reader, and Matthew's being very intentional about painting those similarities and highlighting them. So I think with that being said, I'll open it up for any questions. There's a lot more in this, but I don't want to just keep talking, talking, talking. I'm sure you have questions, um, and I would love to answer them. And if not, then I'll keep talking, talking, talking. But <laughs> anything you're curious about or that stood out to you or questions you have about this passage? <laughs> yes? Um, I have a hard time with the end of this, with the fulfilling the words that were spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, mm -hmm. because assuming that God knows this in advance. I, I'm failing to see the reason for killing all those children. Because uh, the prophecy didn't have to happen anyway, or could have happened in a different way. Sure. Yet, and you can say the same thing, I suppose, about the, with the, the Jews in Egypt. But mm -hmm. um, Herod dies right after this, so it could have been done in a different way. Seems like a, 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 there's an awful lot of uh, slaughter in the Old Testament. Sure. It seems to be uh, uh, just about 
how it goes on in the world all the time. But yeah. it doesn't seem to be adding anything to the story for me. Yeah, well, I think Matthew uses it to paint the clear picture that Jesus is the new Moses. Because there was a prophesied figure in Deuteronomy by Moses of one who would come that was greater than him. And so a lot of people were looking for a Moses-like figure. And so all of these similarities to Moses, including the slaughtering of the young Jewish boys in the River Nile, would have brought to the forefront of the mind of the reader, this is the new Moses. Like, this is who the writer is talking about. Um, in terms of, you know, human suffering and corruption, you know, like wisdom says, God did not make death, nor does he rejoice in the destruction of the living. So that none of that is God's will. God's will and his plan A was the Garden of Eden. We as humans corrupted that. So when we see that in the Old Testament, it says a whole lot less about God and a whole lot more about us. Because just because something is in the Bible doesn't mean, uh, just because the Bible records something doesn't mean that God approves of it. And oftentimes will show later on the consequences of that, those actions. And we can see in both scripture and in history the terrible consequences that uh, resulted in Herod's life and his kingdom being broken up and what happened in the lives of his children because of his corruption and the death and the massacres that, that unfolded because of his paranoia and uh, a lot of his evil tendencies. So, um, you know, getting into the question of why do bad things happen to good people, you know, or to innocent people is just one of the natures of the questions of sin. But it says a whole lot more about humanity and humanity's free will and what we choose to do than it says about God, I think. Right, except that <clears throat> Jeremiah's prophecy was a long time before. Mm -hmm. It seems to have had a purpose, but, but, uh, you know, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be consoled because they were no more. Mm -hmm. I, I, I understand human nature maybe more than many people do, mm -hmm. but, um, I don't, I don't see the, the purpose of that prophecy. Other than it appears if you're what you're saying is is Matthew being Matthew needs to uh, have a lot of uh, proofs put in his word. Yeah, and I don't know whether the other writers uh, should say it that way. I no, not as, as clearly as Matthew does. Because again, Matthew is a Jewish writer writing to a Jewish audience about the Jewish Messiah. So he is using as many of the Jewish Old Testament prophecies and references to the Messiah as he can and showing how Jesus fulfills or meets the criteria of the person that was being expected. So with all prophecy in the Old Testament and in the Bible, there's usually a short-term fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment. So there was some kind of fulfillment at the time Jeremiah issued that prophecy. It had obviously to do with the destruction of Jerusalem, which he saw and lamented about, which is why he wrote Lamentations, which was one of my Bible trivia questions if you were here earlier. So um, yeah, so that was the short-term prophecy. So Matthew was highlighting that thing that already happened and aligning it to current events to show this can also point to this moment to add an additional piece of evidence to show this Jesus is like the Moses, the new Moses that was promised by him in Deuteronomy. Yeah. Other questions? Things that stood out to you? Things you're curious about? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, like, two questions. But my first question is, so, like, the Magi, mm -hmm. the Kings, yep. my book or my... Um, Footnote. Footnote, thank you. Welcome, astrologers. Mm -hmm. We talked about the magic because we're magicians. Mm -hmm. Who are the magic? Those are like three very different they are. things. Yes. So who are they? Yeah, so are the magic kings or the magicians? Who are they? So, um, so the three kings is kind of a misnomer 
Nowhere in this narrative are they referred to as kings. Because they come bringing gifts, there was a clear alignment between them and some prophecies or statements in the Old Testament about kings that made them referred to as kings. So one of the best places for this is in Isaiah 60. Uh, there's a prophecy by Isaiah about uh, the, the glorification of Zion, of Jerusalem. And there's prophecies here where he says, nations shall walk by your light. He's talking about the one who is promised. And a little later on in verse 6, so Isaiah 60, verse 6, says, caravans of camels shall cover you, dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all from Sheba shall come, bearing gold and frankincense and heralding the praises of the Lord. Now, Sheba refers to in uh, Psalm, well, first in, uh, in First Kings, uh, Sheba is one of the queens that visits King Solomon and praises him for all of the wisdom and the, the uh, massive nature of his empire. She gives him lots of different gifts as well, uh, namely gifts of gold and spices, things similar to this. But in uh, Psalm 72, verse 10, both these kind of images come together. And the psalmist writes, May the kings of Tarshish and the islands bring tribute. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. May all kings bow before him. All nations serve him. So the psalmist is taking this image of the queen of Sheba, how she brought gifts to Solomon, who was a king, and is prophesying there will be another one who is like a king, or who will be a king, who you will also bring gifts to. And that, combined with the prophecy from Isaiah about the bringing of gold and frankincense and the mention of Sheba there, kind of got melded together to this idea that they are, they are kings, okay? Nowhere else do we have reference to the fact that these particular people are kings. The word used in the Greek is magi or magoi, uh, which is, is more of like a, uh, a priestly astrologer or soothsayer, okay? So in, uh, we have some writings from the, the historian Herodotus, and Herodotus, uh, the first mention that I'm aware of of Magi is that they are a tribe, one of six tribes of the Persians. Okay, the Persians kind of took over after ancient Babylon. They are the ones who released the Jews back to the promised land so they can rebuild their temple. All of this happens in the four or five hundreds BC. Um, so they're a huge uh, empire. So if you've ever heard of uh, King uh, Xerxes, uh, you know, or if you've seen the movie 300, you know, and all of that history. So Xerxes is one of the Persian emperors, okay? So that's the time that we're, we're talking about here. And at that time, um, the, the tribe of the Magi, they had kind of a priestly function, kind of like the Levites in Judaism. Uh, there's writings in Herodotus's writings of his histories that if people brought sacrifices uh, to be offered to their gods, they were brought to the Magi to be prayed over and prepared in the same way that the Jews brought sacrifices to the temple and the Levites would prepare them. Uh, and Xerxes I, that particular emperor, in about 480 BC, there's an instance where he actually calls upon the Magi to interpret astrological signs for him. So he's about to go into battle with the Greeks, and there is a solar eclipse that happens. And so he asks the Magi to come and say, what is the meaning of this? And so he tells them, well, the sun god is very important to the Greeks, and because he's being covered, that means that they're going to lose and you're going to be victorious. Xerxes goes into battle. They were wrong. It goes terribly bad. But there is historical evidence that he actually consulted them for these astrological signs. So they are believed to be a tribe of Persians in Mesopotamia, Persians like modern-day Iran, who consult the stars and who have a priestly function for that area and that, that kind of 
place. And there was, they, the Jews were there in diaspora or in exile in that region, in the region of Iraq, and, and then Iran kind of took over that area at that time. So there would have been some exposure as well. Some people also believe that they are priests of the cult of Zoroaster, if you know anything about Zoroastrianism. Uh, it's kind of one of, the, uh, one of the more ancient monotheistic religions. The only one older is Judaism, uh, which became Christianity. Um, and part of that might have been exposure from Judaism to these people when they were in exile. So Zoroastrianism, they believe uh, in a single great all-good creator God who they call the wise Lord. They believe that one day that the world will be renovated and made new. They believe in a final judgment. They believe in the resurrection of the dead. Uh, and all of that since like the 5th century BC. Okay, so these, these magi could very well have been part of that, a priestly class of that particular religion in Persia and were native to that particular tribe. Okay, so that's probably who they were. Um, we don't know how many there were. They're often depicted as being three, but that's only because they bring three gifts. It never specifies that there are just three magi. So this could have been two. We know it's more than one. Could have been a hundred. We have no idea. Uh, their depictions and their names and their numbering at three was kind of finalized or began to be a more uh, uh, coherent tradition, cohesive tradition, around the sixth century. There's a, an ancient piece of art that depicts the three wise men and gives them the names Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar. That doesn't come anywhere in scripture. That's just part of kind of a tradition that developed. And then throughout time, to represent the fact that they're from the East, they're Gentiles, and wanting to represent the fact that the Messiah came to save the whole world, they started to be depicted as radically different ages, hair colors, and skin colors to depict the entire world. To say that all of them are coming to notice Jesus. And so Balthazar is often depicted with darker skin uh, and darker hair. Caspar, uh, I believe, is one that's depicted often as very, very old with gray hair. And then Melchior is kind of like younger, maybe red-haired. It depends. And they all have kind of differing skin tones. And there's even traditions about where they all came from in the East. They all came from different regions. As the, the, these traditions try to develop to kind of be like, oh, it covers everywhere. Like they're represented of, of all these people, the whole world coming to adore the baby Jesus to foreshadow that he would then commission the apostles to go out to the whole world, okay? So all of that is just kind of tradition. It's not here in the text. All we know is that there was a group of these priestly astrologer people, probably from Zoroastrianism or whatever the cult of the, the Persian Empire at that time was, whatever remnant there was in Iran, um, coming to pay homage to this newborn king that they have seen sign of in the stars. Did that answer your question? Cool. Yes? Uh, I'm just curious why Mary and Joseph would have stayed in Bethlehem instead of going right back to their hometown. Yes, yeah. Um, I have maybe some practical considerations. Um, Mary rode on a donkey for 80 miles and then gave birth probably not really excited to go back on a journey right after that. I mean, it's, it's a lot to go through. Um, and also we see in this that when they come and visit her, she's in a house. Okay, so they've been there enough time to kind of get out of the cave, to settle down, to fulfill what their obligations were at that time of the census. Remember, that's the whole reason they're traveling to Bethlehem at that time. And then to kind of gain the energy and make sure the child is well and healthy enough to travel. So this could have been anywhere between a few months to a couple years. 
when they first encounter the, uh, the, the Magi. Uh, that's why dating, uh, the dating of Jesus' birth and some of these events can sometimes be tricky because it's not clear how old he is here. Um, however, we do have in Luke's gospel the uh, announcement or the uh, proclamation that he was uh, circumcised at eight days old and presented in the temple when he was about 40 days old. Uh, and now the temple was in Jerusalem. Bethlehem is only five miles from Jerusalem. Nazareth, where they end up living, is way up in the region of Galilee. So it's very likely they stayed at least that amount of time to be presented in the temple and be in a house at that time. So probably for a month and a half, two months at least, but could have very well been all the way up to two years because it says Herod ordered the massacre of all boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity two years old and under. So he probably got information from the Magi when he consults with them that this sign in the sky that they were following appeared at least long enough for him to set kind of a, a healthy, in his mind, uh, boundary that, okay, anyone born from this time forward could possibly be this king, okay? So um, that's where we get kind of that, that timing, okay? So um, that's reasons why they probably would have stayed and how long it could have been. Yeah. Other questions? Yeah. Is there any way to map the night sky at this point and find the stars? Yes, I'm so glad you asked that question. I'm ready to nerd out, okay? So, because um, I used to be an astrophysics major, so I love space, and um, there's so much cool stuff about this idea of the star. So, um, the birth of Jesus is often disputed, okay? Because King Herod, uh, you may have this in your footnote. I even have it in my footnote in, in my Bible under uh, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Um, that Herod reigned from 37 to 4 BC. Now, if he died in 4 BC and Jesus was maybe two years old when the wise men visited, a lot of historians were then trying to reconcile this with like, was Jesus born in 6 or 7 BC? Because when our calendar was shifted to kind of have uh, the center of it being the birth of Jesus, it wasn't super exact. You know, like we didn't have all the information we have now. So it's plus or minus a few years. And there's no year zero. We went from 1 BC to 1 AD. So there's kind of a little fluctuation there as to when Jesus was born. And uh, we don't have any definitive details. However, modern researchers have done a lot of work to pinpoint some of these dates. So uh, Herod, uh, I'll get back to the story, I promise. Um, so Herod, um, we have information about him from the Jewish historian Josephus about his death in particular. And Herod, uh, it was written by Josephus that Herod died between a solar, solar eclipse or a lunar eclipse. Hold on, I'm finding where I have this written down, if I have it written down. Uh, between a lunar eclipse and Passover, okay? So there was a lunar eclipse um, in the early part of uh, the fourth, uh, fourth century BC, or year four BC. However, it was a partial eclipse. There was a total lunar eclipse right before Passover in 1 BC, okay? Um, and a lot of other uh, things reconcile in Josephus' writings that I can't really get into because just it's overly detailed and I don't have them in my notes, but um, that point more to it being closer to that 1 BC deadline. And the way that his reign was established was the number of years basically counting backward from his death or from particular moments surrounding his 
uh, ascent to the throne. And Josephus, in his writings, he doesn't count partial years. So when you take all that into account, there's very easy to make like a plus or minus of a year or two or three. Okay? So it's believed by most historians that Jesus was born in the year 2 or 3 BC and that Herod died in 2 or 1 BC. So that these events kind of coalesce very much in what we know historically about the people and the details of things that were happening at that time. This also jives with what we know about astrology and the things that were happening in the night sky at that time. So if you are an uh, astrological soothsayer, um, from the region where, by the way, in I think it was in 1130 BC, um, in the region of Mesopotamia, the Babylonians and the Persians were responsible for the development of the zodiac constellations as we now know them to help them interpret things from the stars. So they were very much attuned to the night sky. So if you're looking up at the night sky or at the sky in general, what are you going to pay most attention to? What do we think? The planets. Yes, because the stars are fixed. They're just moving. They're moving around. So you're going to pay attention to the things that don't have as uh, clear as a path as the stars. So the planets, which wander in the night sky, the sun and the moon, because they're the biggest bodies that we can see in, in the sky, and probably things like comets and whatnot. Now, I believe in about the year um, 7 BC, there was a comet that passed by. But comets were typically bad omens. I mean, if something is breaking through the very firm, organized, uh, you know, shield of the stars, uh, that doesn't seem very good. And so it wasn't something that they would have gone off excitedly in search of. They probably would have been preparing for the worst anytime they, they saw a comet. Um, and then um, there were some kind of alignments of certain planets uh, around the year 4 BC. But if we look a little bit later, if you are looking for, like, don't think biblically, biblically now, uh, think astrologically. Okay. If I see the word king, what do you think of when you think of the planets and the stars? King. For you, you know it's in your head. Just say it. King. The sun is a good one, but who's the king? Who's the king in Greek and Roman astrology, or in the pantheon of gods? Zeus, Jupiter. Okay, Zeus is represented by Jupiter. That's his Roman name, Jupiter. Okay. And then uh, the Virgin. Who's the Virgin? And the stars. Venus or Virgo, the constellation. Okay? So we have these different representations. And then if someone says, one like a lion of Judah, when you look at the stars and you think lion, what do you think of? Leo, the constellation. So there's a lot of different possible combinations, astrologically, that could lead these magi to think very particular, detailed kind of prophecies about what is going on. There are two things that happened in 3 BC, around the same time, that could have propelled them to come to Jerusalem. The first is uh, on August 12th, 3 BC, so we can rewind the night sky pretty exactly because we've mapped so much of the stars and planets patterns that we can do that. Um, both Jupiter, the king, and Venus, the virgin, rise in, um, in Leo, the constellation Leo, the lion. And so at that time, because the planet shifted, they both rise in the east within the constellation Leo. They were constantly looking, especially at Jupiter, because Jupiter represented kings, and kings matter. And so, um, for instance, if ever there was a, uh, an eclipse and Jupiter was not in the, in the sky, that was a prophecy to them that the king would die. And so what they would do is they would take a criminal from jail and make them temporarily the king. 
And they would have a fake ceremony and be like, this is the king, we're so happy it's the king. And they would just wait it out and see if the king died for a few months. And then if he didn't, they would execute him to kind of fulfill the prophecy. And then they'd bring the real king back into, uh, into rule. This was a very common thing that they did. They took this stuff very seriously and they paid particular attention to Jupiter when it had these matters of the king, okay? So Jupiter and Venus, okay, a king from a virgin, rising in Leo, who is believed to be the Lion of Judah. And they very well could have been exposed to this prophecy when they had interaction with the Jewish people in the East when they were in exile, okay? The second one, which is more the one that I think is in particular, just happened a month later on September 11th and 3 BC. And on that day, um, Jupiter, oh, sorry, the sun uh, is in the constellation Virgo, so the actual sun is in Virgo, and at the bottom of Virgo is the moon. And that is very reminiscent of, you've probably heard this before, in Revelation, depicting the birth of the sun in Revelation. A great sign appeared in the sky, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And so all of these things had some kind of astrological significance to compel them to say, okay, there's going to be a king, possibly born of a virgin, and we've heard of this prophecy about one of Judah. And so let's go to the nearest kingship, which is Jerusalem. And we'll go to the palace of King Herod because he is the king to go in. Where else would we expect a king than in the palace? So it explains perfectly why they would go where they did in search of who they were searching for. And why this would have made perfect sense once they realized this is a child born of a virgin in this area. And this is the true king and bow down and worship of him. So a lot of super cool things that happened at that time that could describe that. Very uh, uh, commonly you will hear if you see like uh, Venus and Jupiter or uh, Venus, Jupiter and Saturn all in alignment. Uh, they sometimes call that uh, the Star of Bethlehem. They'll nickname it that. And those three planets I think aligned at different times, maybe around 4 BC, which is part of the evidence why for a long time people have said 4 BC, 4 BC, 4 BC. But now that we're looking more at some of these more uh, intricate details, the evidence is pointing so much more uh, confidently to Jesus being born in 2 or 3 BC, Herod dying in 1 BC, and this kind of all aligning up with the timeline of, of Scripture more, more easily. So that's what the star was, maybe. Could also have been something totally supernatural that just led them to, uh, to the exact house in Bethlehem. Who knows? But there is uh, an, an astronomical precedent for why they left and why they were looking for who they were looking for, because that was what they paid attention to. Cool stuff. Any other uh, questions, comments, things that stand out to you in this reading? Let's talk about the gifts. Okay, the Magi bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, obviously, is a sign of wealth, and you've probably heard these terms before. When we are baptized, we're baptized into the offices of Jesus, and Jesus has a priestly office, a prophetic office, and a royal office. So you'll often hear people talk about the faithful who are baptized as you are priest, prophet, and king, or priest, prophet, and queen. Uh, and so those kind of reminisce the, uh, the qualities of Jesus. And a lot of them are represented here in the gifts from the Magi. So gold is a gold, is a gift fit for a king. Someone who is royal has that you know, treasury, has that wealth. And they were specifically gold was specified as those gifts being brought from Sheba to King Solomon, a gift fit for a king. 
Secondly, frankincense. Frankincense is used uh, as an incense, but it's used particularly in the temple. When uh, Moses was instructed to build the temple in the desert when they were wandering, he's instructed in Exodus chapter 30 uh, to take aromatic substances, storax, onica, and galbanum, these and pure frankincense in equal parts and blend them into incense. And this was the incense that was offered 24-7 on the altar of incense, which was in the first room of the temple when you went into the temple building itself or the tent itself, which only the priests could go into. Okay, um, And then myrrh, myrrh was used uh, for, for two purposes that we can see in the Bible. The first was, um, well, actually I think three, uh, but the first was as part of the anointing oil of this same temple. So when Aaron and, uh, and his sons are named priests, they're instructed to take uh, a bunch of spices, uh, 500 shekels of free-flowing myrrh, and mix it into oil and use that oil to consecrate, to anoint everything in the temple, all of the priests. It was a signification of something that was very holy and special. Myrrh was also used to anoint the dead. Myrrh is a very sticky substance, and so it would kind of be put all over the body of someone who had died, and then they would be wrapped in cloth, and that myrrh would help adhere the cloth to the body to help preserve it, um, in a respectful way so it didn't like decay immediately or anything like that. Um, and oftentimes, the Jewish form of burial was that you would wash the body and anoint it in this way, usually on the day or within 24 hours of a person's death. And then you would come back after a year and you would put the remains of the person in an ossuary, a box, and then you would kind of shelve it in your family tomb. Uh, and so it was kind of a temporary and then a final means of purification. So myrrh had a very important role to play in that, to preserve the body in such a way that it would be okay for people to come visit, that it would be okay for the burial, but then wouldn't be preserved so long that they couldn't then bury the bones after a year. And so this actually happens to Jesus in John chapter uh, 19, 39, when they're preparing his body. Uh, it says, um, and Pilate permitted, so he came, this is Joseph Arimathea, came and took his body. Nicodemus, the one who had first come to him at night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about 100 pounds. And they used that to prepare Jesus' body. Myrrh, I believe, also somewhere in scripture, I might be mistaken in this, but I think historically it was used for this. It was sometimes used as an opiate, like a drug. And I think there is one reference to uh, gall being mixed with wine or perhaps myrrh being mixed with my, wine and offered to Jesus on the cross as like a pain-dulling uh, um, element. And so myrrh, one of these things to emphasize someone's humanity and also basically a prophecy, this person's going to die, but to die in a way that like is similar to these prophets of the Old Testament and these people that use these things in the temple. Uh, and then frankincense obviously reminded them of priests. So you have kings, priests, and prophets. And so these gifts already are being presented to this child, already proclaiming in one sense who he is and what he is going to do. But again, the three gifts is what led to us believing there were three kings, and then throughout tradition, years later, naming them and depicting them in art. But this could have been any number of these priests, uh, this priestly class of um, astrologers from the East. Any other thoughts, questions? Yes? Um, we have learned that God talked to us back then mm -hmm. through visions or through dreams. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty sure God still you know, uses that tool too. Oh yeah. How do we know when it comes from God? Yeah. So uh, especially like a vision or a dream. Um, so I, I would align that with something like a category of prophecy. 
And uh, something I know about prophecy, or I've been told about prophecy, is that how do you know it's legitimate? Um, and you just ABC it. Is it affirming? Is it biblical? And is it Christ-like? Does it match from what the types of prophecy we see in the Bible? And does it sound like something Jesus would say? And is it affirming? So they all kind of say the same thing, but you can look at that from different angles. If it's something that builds you up, it's not cutting you down in a way that's like condescending. Sometimes we have prophecies, we, we need to hear difficult things in order to build us up. So in that way, it can be affirming. That doesn't mean it's overwhelmingly positive, but is it affirming, is it biblical, and is it Christ-like? And I would say the same thing about a vision or a dream. If you come out of it feeling like very unsettled, like something dark or sinister is at work, Probably not from the Lord, because the devil and his demons have the ability uh, to uh, speak things that sound like prophecy. They quote, the devil himself quotes the Old Testament when he's tempting Jesus. And so we have to test everything, like First Thessalonians tells us, um, and then retain what is good. Does that answer your question? Yeah, great. Any other final thoughts? We were small but mighty tonight. We made it pretty much the whole, the whole time just in our, our little group. <laughs> I appreciate you being here. Happy New Year. Uh, and I, I, I encourage you as we read this and as we hear this proclaimed on Sunday, um, I think first and foremost to just to see the wild way that God works. To see the wild way that God can work in your life. Because this is not what anyone expected. Matthew had to go out of his way to show like, no, this is how this is fulfilling all of these things were promised by highlighting them. All these Old Testament references. And then having to bring people who were unexpected, people who are higher up in a totally different religion who are not Jewish, could come and see and validate that this person was a Jewish Messiah. And so talk about the most like unpredictable play in the history of, sal of salvation that these types of things would come about. And it's a good reminder, I think, for me and hopefully for you that God is not beyond working in wild and unexpected ways now either in your life. And it's a reminder to me to let go of my preconceived notions, plans, and ideas of how I want God to show up or what I would like my life to look like, to be flexible and docile to the Spirit, to welcome input from God instead of bringing my plans to God and saying, God, can you just bless these and make these happen? but actually allowing him to formulate those in prayer, in your own heart, in your own life. And when we do that, when we follow that direction, we'll begin to see signs that maybe didn't come together before, but then we can get, come and follow them and bring who we are and the gifts that we have to the feet of the Lord and offer them to him to be used, to proclaim his glory, just as the Magi from the East were able to do. Though it was unexpected, though it was a difficult trek, though they ended up in the wrong destination initially, they were still led where they needed to go. And so whatever your plans are, whatever your preconceived notions are, whatever you'd love for God to do in your life right now, know that he's, possible, he's capable of doing absolutely anything in your life. And he desires your greatest possible good. But the way in which that happens is completely unpredictable. And if we've learned anything from Scripture and from these many, many weeks of Bible study, we've probably learned that God doesn't do things in the same way twice. And when he does do things, they're often unexpected and upside down. And we are not invited to understand, but to be along for the ride and to trust and surrender that God knows what he's doing, that he is faithful, and that we don't need to have the full picture presented to us to say yes. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of sacred scripture, for the gift of this word tonight, for the gift of all of the ways that you are reaching out to us, all the ways you're working in our lives that are unexpected, that are unpredictable. 
Help us to be open and um, have the willingness to trust that you are at work and that we don't need to have it all figured out to say yes. We praise you and thank you for all of the unseen moments, the unseen ways that you work today in our lives, the unseen ways you are blessing us abundantly that we don't even realize that we have yet to thank you for. And we pray that we would have just hearts that are attuned to your will, Lord. Bless us in this coming year. Help us to be resolved to follow you more closely, to have a deeper relationship with you, and to be in your word every single day, to talk to you every single day, and to worship you in all that we do every single day. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.